Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Well, last week we were in Hebrews chapter 4, and uh, uh, we were talking about uh, rest and, and uh, talking about the Word of God and stuff. And we get to the uh, verse, um, I'm trying to find out where I'm at here. Uh, did I say 4? I meant chapter 5. Sorry. Chapter 5. That's why I'm looking at chapter 4 going, wait, I don't see where my passage. That's like one of those nightmares pastors have. It's like, you know, it's like, oh, <laughs> I studied the wrong scriptures. for. The, uh, well, we would have had a different teaching this morning, but that's okay. It's okay. It's all good. It's all the God's word anyways. Chapter 5 we were in last week. And in chapter 5, towards the end of, of the chapter, um, uh, the writer to the Hebrews, he says this in verse 9. And having been perfected, he's speaking of Jesus Christ, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So he wanted to explain something about Melchizedek. Melchizedek's a, a character that we meet in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. And he wants to explain stuff, but man, these guys are spiritually immature. They can't handle it. And that's the problem that these Hebrew believers had was spiritual immaturity. I titled this message, well, actually, I forgot what I titled it, but it's, I think it's you need a diet or change your diet. That's it. Change your diet. Um, so we'll be talking about that as we go through. But what way did it manifest, the spiritual immaturity? You know, the, the Corinthian church, they were immature too, but they were immature in a different way. The Hebrew believers immature in a different way and what did it how did it manifest itself in the Hebrew believers and that's this they had dullness toward the word of God verse uh, 11 of chapter 5 of whom we have much to say speak of Melchizedek and hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing notice that it says since you have become it's not that they never were growing it's that they uh, the verb implies that there was a deterioration in their lives and in their hearts. They become dull of hearing. That word dull means sluggish. And it's repeated in verse 12 of chapter 6. And it means slow and sluggish in mind, or sluggish in mind as well as in the ears. So it's not just that they were having a hard time hearing, but it was their mind. And that sluggish really, what it means, what it boils down to is that they were mentally lazy. Mentally lazy. And what was the evidence of the dullness toward the word of God? Well, it's mentioned in verse 12. It's their inability to counsel others with the word of God. Look at verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. He says, by this time, you guys ought to be teaching people. You've, you've heard the word long enough. You've listened to the teachings long enough. You've, you've got your own Bible. You should be able to teach others. Paul says this in Romans chapter 5, verse 14. He says, now I myself am confident concerning you, my brethren, that you also are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. 
you and I as believers, we're able to counsel. We're able to admonish one another. But these Hebrew believers, they had grown dull to the word of God. They had become lazy when it comes to the word of God. And they deteriorated in their growth. And it resulted in the fact that they needed to be taught again. It says the first principles of the oracles of God. The first principles of the oracle of God, what does that mean? It literally boils down to the ABCs of God's word. The ABCs, the very basic things of God's word. They couldn't even teach someone else the ABCs of God's word. The problem was their diet. They were only eating baby food. Look at the second half of verse 12. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. So the result of only eating baby food is that they were unskilled and unskillful in using God's word. Look at verse 14. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age. That is, those who by reason of their use, or reason of use, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. By reason of use, that literally means habit. Out of habit, they've been regularly in the word, and as a result of a habit, they've gained an ability, or these guys haven't, but they should have been. The ability was uh, through practice and through exercise, going into God's word. And by reason of use, they would have had their ex, uh, senses exercised. Now that word, uh, having their senses exercised, the picture that the writer is, is, is painting for us and for his audience is the way the Greek athletes would exercise in the gymnasium back there in, the, in that day and age. You know, they'd work out, sweating and, you know, kind of toiling through and just working up some strength, working up some stamina, working up some skills. That's the picture that's being painted here. The outcome that would have been gained or the ability that would have been gained by it was to be able to discern both good and evil. In other words, to distinguish between good and evil. And it's not just, you know, good and evil, like sin and not sin. What's sin and not, although that is important to, to discern. But it goes beyond that. It goes beyond that to teachings and doctrines and practices that seem godly, they seem spiritually spiritual, and yet they're, they're unbiblical. And, and so getting into God's word gives you the ability to discern. And, you know, that's one of the things that's lacking, uh, I think, quite a, quite a bit in the church, uh, the church universal, I'm talking, not just, I think our church has no problem with that. But, you know, other churches, other bad churches, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> they have a problem. The church of, of God's church, Christ's church, has an inability to, to uh, use discernment. You see it left and right. Uh, and so it's really sad. Now, some people move past the baby stage. You know, they move past the baby food, um, but they still have an unhealthy diet. How could that be? Well, because they're eating mainly processed foods. It's one thing I've learned. If you want to have a healthy diet, get rid of all the processed foods and start eating unprocessed foods. Uh, you know, stuff that's processed. What am I talking about? I'm talking about like popular teachers listening to what they speak or they teach. And they might teach the Bible, hopefully they do, or teach about the Bible or speak about the Bible, um, or books, 
You know, you got all these books that you read about the Bible or blogs or uh, devotionals, commentaries. What that is basically is somebody has got into the Word of God. They've kind of chewed it up, meditated on it, studied it. They've processed it, and now they're presenting to you what they've processed. And, and you know, there's, there's a little bit of nutrient in it, but if that's your strict, if that's your diet, it's not healthy. We had uh, at, our, at our old church, uh, our old building that we were at, um, we just had just bought this this little small little chapel on the other side of town, and and uh, we decided that you know we're going to go out. It was in the neighborhood. And we thought you know we're going to go out in the neighborhood. We're going to introduce ourselves to people, invite people to church. And so there was a group of people that were doing that, and I was with an individual. And we came to this house of this little old lady, and her name is Sylvie. And uh, we met Sylvie, and uh, she was excited about coming to church. And she started coming to our church, and uh, she wasn't uh, very healthy, and she had some. Health health issue. She ended up going into the hospital. Now, her husband had been physically abusive, so she was divorced from him. And the kids were, were uh, uh, they were, uh, I won't say separated, but estranged. Estranged, thank you. <laughs> they were estranged um, from, their, from their mom. And so she was basically by herself. So we kind of became her family. And uh, over time, again, she got ill. I don't remember exactly what led her into the hospital, but she was in the hospital. And uh, because she had nobody, she made my wife and I kind of the, uh, almost like uh, the medical uh, power of attorney, sort of, so to speak, for her. And so we were kind of there a lot at the hospital. My wife was there for a long time while she was in the emergency room or in uh, intensive care. And so anyways, we were there with her. And at one point, um, she had this cat and uh, she wanted us to go and take care of this cat in her house. And also, I think we had to get some documents. She needed some documents. She wasn't really sure where, so we had to go look for them. And so my wife and I, we went into Sylvie's house and we're looking around and you pull up a drawer and she goes, oh, she must have li liked Kellogg's Pop-Tarts because the drawer had a bunch of Pop-Tarts. We go to a closet, open the closet door. There's a stack of Kellogg's Pop-Tarts. Everywhere we looked, we saw Kellogg's Pop-Tarts. And we're like, man, no wonder why she's, you know, not doing so good in the hospital. And, you know, it's kind of, it's sad. It's sad because, you know, she, she had told us, she kind of felt that she was going to be dying soon, and, and she did end up passing away relatively soon. Um, but she had said to us, you know, um, don't worry about anything. I've donated my body to the Mayo Clinic, and uh, so it's for research and stuff. Well, she had so much cancer in her body that they said, we can't even take her. And so it was, it was really sad. And, you know, it, I, and I, I can't blame it on Kellogg's Pop-Tarts, but, but <laughs> if your diet is processed foods, it's still not good. It's still not healthy. And if, you're, if all that you're taking in is what somebody else has digested, you know, you get the study Bible, and it's got the little notes on the bottom, and that's your, your reading, and oh, what did they say? Well, okay, that's there. I've just done my Bible study. You're not, that's not very healthy. And if that's what you're trying to sustain your walk in the Lord on, I guarantee you're going to have problems sooner or later. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5.21. He says, test all things, hold fast what is good. Test all things. 
Um, Luke, the writer of the second half, anyways, and I think he's the writer of the entire book of, of the book of Acts, um, in chapter 17 and 11, he describes a group, the Bereans, and they were a group, uh, you know, it was a church of Berea, was close to Thessalonica, and he says this about the Bereans in chapter 17, verse 11. He says they were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Remember, Paul said to Thessalonians, or Thessalonians, you know, test all things. Well, the Bereans, they were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Readiness of mind, that means eagerness, not apathy, not lethargy or lethargy. Um, and they, so they used, they were eagerly searching the scriptures and the word implies that they were examining accurately or carefully the word. And they were doing it daily. So they were doing it regularly. They were getting into the word and they were, what were they doing? They were finding out whether those things were so, whether what things were so, what the apostles were telling them, what their pastor was teaching them. Think about that. If Paul was here today and he came up here and he started teaching, I mean, that's like, hey, it's the apostle Paul. I mean, he wrote most of the New Testament, right? Whatever he says, it's got to be true. It's got to be right. But you know what Paul said? Paul said this to the Galatians, but even if we, speaking of the apostles, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And so the Bereans, yeah, Paul's a great guy. He definitely knows his scriptures, but we're not going to take his word for it. We're going to dig in and see what God's word says. And so they would dig in. So now he, here to this, to this Hebrew readers, he's really called them out for their spiritual immaturity. But now as we move into chapter 6, he's going to call them to spiritual maturity. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ... Let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. What's he saying? He says, hey, guys, let's move beyond the ABCs of God's word to some more meatier subjects, like how Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Let's get into some meteor stuff, meat, not meteor, <laughs> but, you know, heavier stuff, some, some more, some meat, the meat in God's word. You know what's interesting in those first three verses? The apostle that wrote this letter, he says what he considers are the ABCs of God's word. Look at that. What are the ABCs? What are the basic things that he feels that these Christians should understand? Well, the first one is repentance from dead works. You know, repentance from sinful works leading to death, but also repentance from self-righteous works leading to dead orthodoxy. That's something every believer should, or that, according to this apostle, that's some basic stuff that we should know. What else? Faith toward God. Faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross for our salvation and faith in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We, should, we, ha, we walk by faith, not by sight. We're saved by faith in Christ Jesus. So faith toward God, that's, that should be a basic thing. That's an ABC of, the, of God's word. 
another one, the doctrine of baptisms. Now, this is kind of interesting because you'll notice that it's plural. Doctrine of baptisms. Well, I believe that he's speaking, of course, believers' water baptism, but I also think he's talking about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Baptisms. Those are the ABCs. What else? Laying on of hands. If you go through and look through scriptures of every place that talks about laying on of hands, you know what it's talking about? It's talking about finding your spiritual gifts and being empowered for service. In fact, Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12, 1, he says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. That's something we shouldn't be ignorant about. What is my spiritual gift? And, and, and being empowered for service by the Holy Spirit. That's one of the ABCs according to this apostle. What else? The resurrection of the dead. What happens to the dead in Christ? Paul wrote this to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. You guys should know what happens to a believer when they die. It's, it's basic. It's, it's elementary, Watson. Um, and then, of course, what happens to the unsaved dead? Another ABC, eternal judgment. He's speaking about the great white throne judgment for unbelievers. That's found in Revelation chapter 20. The judgment seat of Christ for believers, that's found in two places, 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans 14. We as believers, these are basic things that we should understand. You know, if you go through, and I encourage you to do this sometime. Don't do it right now, but you know, maybe this week or so. Do a word study in your New Testament of every place Paul says, do you not know? That's a very interesting study. Because all those things, he's, he's implying you should know this. So if you want to you dig into a study, do, look for all the do you not knows, and then say, do I, do I really know this? And get in and, and, and learn it. So the writer is talking to this. Hey, guys, let's, let's move on beyond this. So hopefully that foundation has been laid in their hearts and hopefully in our hearts as well. Now, I want to just say one thing about that. Repetition is not the problem. He's not saying, hey, guys, we can't talk about this anymore. We got to get into some heavier stuff. I mean, we're not even going to touch on those subjects anymore. He's not saying that. In fact, Peter's epistle in 2 Peter 1.12, he says something about repeating himself. He says, for this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. So it's not an issue of repeating the study on the gifts of the Spirit or, or the resurrection of the dead or all these things. We should know them. We should understand them. But it's okay to, be, to, to repeat about it. So repetition is not the issue. The issue is being lazy with God's Word re regarding everything else, not digging in deeper ourselves. Um, I was just introduced uh, about a week or two ago for a, a reality TV show. My wife is a, is a rock hound, and she found this show called Outback Opal Hunters. Anybody seen that? <laughs> it's, uh, it's got a lot of bloops. It's got a lot of bloops, but um, it's a very interesting show. And it's these guys that are in the outback of Australia, and they're looking for opals. 
And uh, it's, I, I, I got addicted to it too. I'm like, whoa, man, I want to see them get something. Well, what these guys do is they dig down into the dirt to what's known as the opal layer. So it's like, I don't know, 18 meters down. There's a, there's a certain depth where you can find opals in the outback of Australia. And a lot of times these guys in these shows, they're, not, they're, they're basically going to old opal mines or old holes that somebody else has dug in and they've, they've found opals. And they go and they start going further and they dig they expand what's already there and they find opals and man they're, they're gorgeous what they find and one of the things like this one guy was trying to keep uh, his dad was a miner and he, his dad had this claim this mine claim and and has passed away and and it looked like it was pretty much all mined out and he's like I'm gonna keep digging and part of that they're following him and he finds stuff one of the things that his buddy says just a comment to the to the guy who's filming him on the camera. He says, you know, if this was easy, everybody would be doing it. Because if you look at their lives, I mean, it's like, man, I want opal. I, in fact, I got so excited, I told my wife, I said, you know what? Let's sell everything, move to the outback, and let's become opal hunters. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm not, you're, you're probably saying, yeah, that's finally, we can get rid of that guy, you know? <laughs> um, but if you look at their lives, they're on the middle of nowhere. They're covered in dirt. Um, it looks like a very, very meager subsistence that they're going. In fact, a lot of times they find enough opal just to pay for the fuel for their little whatever they're you know using for their their digging and stuff. Uh, but they're all looking for that, you know, that one payoff, the big payoff. And uh, so it's kind of like what the writer is saying here. Let's move beyond the ABCs, and let's start digging in deeper. You guys should be digging in deeper. And as you and I dig into God's word, we're going to find those gems of scripture. So now in verse 4, he's going to explain why they needed spiritual maturity. Verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Okay, here we go. <laughs> What's he going to say? Hey, you know what I'm glad about? I'm glad that this is not in the list of the ABCs. <laughs> this is more like the, uh, you know, the RSTs or the PQRs, the XYZs of God's Word. This is a difficult passage right here. And I'll be honest with you, and I hate to burst your bubbles, but I don't have a monopoly on the truth. I'll just say that right now. I don't have a monopoly on the truth. I don't know everything. But what I do know and what I do have is God's word, which is truth. And I do know that. And so I and you and I, by reason of use, need to exercise our minds to be able to understand or distinguish what is the Spirit saying in this passage. And there are very many smart people that have, smarter than me, that have different views of this passage. But I want to give you a word of caution. Don't approach this passage or any other passage from a theological mindset. And what I mean by that is you have your, your dogma, your doctrine, your theology all figured out. And so you go to scriptures like this and you go, well, I know what I believe. So I'm going to start reading this. And what happens when we do that is we read into it what we want it to say. But we don't do that when you're approaching scripture. I encourage you not to do that. 
in my opinion, and that's just my opinion, there's two different and very dangerous ways to view this. The first one, and I think is a very common one, is that a lot of believers will say, hey, this does not apply to me, and so I can disregard it, because I'm saved. I can disregard it. That's dangerous. The second, which I also think is, is equally dangerous, is someone to read that and go, I've done something wrong. I've lost my salvation. What does that lead to? That leads to defeat. So for those that say, hey, this does not apply, why do they say that? Well, they say the people he's referring to were not truly born again. Therefore, it doesn't apply to me because I am born again. I can disregard it. Don't do that. Are these people saved? Well, let's take a little dig into here. First of all, it describes the people. He says, those who were once enlightened. And the argument is, well, the gospel was revealed to them. They were enlightened, but they never responded in faith. Well, that word enlightened, it literally means once for all enlightened. And we can find that word somewhere else in Hebrews. In Hebrews 10, verse 32, he's speaking to the, to the Hebrews. He says, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. I don't know about you, but it sure sounds like believers to me. The context seems to be believers. The next way he describes them is as those who have tasted the heavenly gift. And there are people who say, yeah, they tasted, but they never actually partook of the heavenly gift, which we're talking about salvation. They tasted it, but they really, you know, they never really partook of it. Well, again, we can find that scripture tasted or that word tasted elsewhere in Hebrews. In Hebrews 2.9, it says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. Christ Jesus didn't just simply taste death but not partook of it. When he tasted death, he died on the cross. He tasted death for us. He died. So when it talks about those who have tasted the heavenly gift, I, I, I think he's talking about believers. And then it says that they've become partakers of the Holy Spirit. Partaker means a sharer by implication and associate. And that word partakers, that's found in a couple more places in Hebrews in chapter 3. Therefore, in verse 1, Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. He calls those partakers holy brethren. He calls them, uh, he talks about our confession. In other words, our faith in Christ. He's talking to believers. And then there in verse 14 of chapter 3, For we have become partakers of Christ if we, be, if we hold the beginning of our conference uh, confidence, excuse me, steadfast to the end. That sounds like believers to me. And then finally, the, the rest of the description is that they've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. And again, taste carries the idea of experience. So in my opinion, it's hard to dispute that these are born again people. I think they're born again. So what does it say? It is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. Now, it's interesting. 
just a side note, that word, if they fall away, it's the Greek word parapipto, uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but it's only used one place, right here in this passage of scripture, and it means to fall beside a person or thing, to deviate from the right path, to turn aside, to wander. He's not using the word apostasia, which means to depart. And in Acts 21.21, it's translated to forsake. And in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 3, it talks about the falling away, the great apostasy that's going to happen in the last days. He's not, he didn't use those words. Now, there are those... Uh, so those who say, they, the other side of that, they say, well, you know, man, this is obviously teaching that you can lose your salvation. And people that follow that line of thinking, they say, well, you become born again, again, and again, and again, as many times as, you know, you know I got to get born again, again, and uh, born again, 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 again. You know, it's like it's a, it's a repetition thing. Well, if that's true, if that's a true interpretation, and I don't think it is, it doesn't say that they can be born again, 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 again. It says it's impossible for them to repent. It also goes against a lot of other scriptures about the security of the believer. Right? We, could, we could get into a separate study of that. So some say, okay, this is just hypothetical. What the writer is saying is if a person could fall away, that they could never repent again. But, but since you can't lose your salvation, it's never going to happen. And there, there's some very smart people that that's their, 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 their take, that it's, uh, it's hypothetical. My argument with that is, what's the point? <laughs> Why teach them something that's, that couldn't possibly happen? Well, what's the point in teaching them? He's warning these Hebrews. Warren Wiersbe has another uh, 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 theory that I think is, it definitely carries some weight. He says this, however, there is another possible interpretation that does not require a hypothetical case. You should know that the words crucify and put in Hebrew 6.6 are in the Greek present participles. It means while they are crucifying and while they are putting him to an open shame. The writer did not say that these people could never be brought to repentance. He said that they could not be brought to repentance while they are treating Jesus Christ in such a shameful way. Once again, or excuse me, once they stop disgracing Jesus Christ in this way, they can be brought to repentance and renew their fellowship with God. So that's another theory on what this passage is. Now, if you understand, there's a lot of good Christians that have all different views of this. So, again, I don't have the monopoly on the truth. But I'll, when I look at a passage like this, I look at the context. What's the context? Remember I said in the last couple weeks, these are Hebrew believers that are, it's, it's, it's later on, the temple's still standing, hasn't been destroyed yet, Christ hasn't returned, you know, that was a, I mean, the, the disciples are saying Christ is coming back any time, and he hasn't returned yet, temple's still standing, worship's still going on in the temple, and there were believers that were considering going back to Judaism, and that, that's, that's why this, this epistle was written. Well, what good is Christ's atonement if you return to animal sacrifices, if you try to earn your own righteousness through observing the law of Judaism, what good is it? You're basically rejecting Christ in that sense. 
don't know if you ever heard this phrase, a mist in the pulpit results in a fog in the pews. You ever heard that before? <laughs> so like, like if I'm a little confused, man, it's, it's not going to translate well. You know, it's going to be, if, I'm, if I have a mist on this, it's going to mean like fog. You can't see your hand in front of your face. Um, so I don't want to leave you in a fog, even though I have, there's a little bit of mist for me too. I'm going to give you my humble opinion, and it's definitely my humble opinion. These are saved people. It's not hypothetical, hypothetical, I should say. And the point is not to strike fear in someone that they could lose their salvation. There's lots of scriptures that say you can't lose your salvation. But it's warning these people that a return to Judaism is basically willfully walking away from Christ's atonement for sin. And it could be catastrophic for your eternity if that's what you do. And I'll just leave it at that. You might say, you know, I'm not so sure about that, Pastor. Good. Then dig into God's word yourself. Do your own Bible study. Be a Berean. And see what, you know, do, do your own study. I encourage you to do that. Don't always take my word for everything. So, again, we'll move on here. Now in the rest of verse 7 and 8, he gives an illustration of the danger of falling away. Again, I'm not talking about apostasy. I'm talking about deviating from the right path or turning aside and wandering. Verse 7, for the earth which drinks in the rain that often uh, comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to being cursed, whose end is to be burned. You'll notice it's not an issue of the soil, the rain that often falls upon it. What's he talking about? He's talking about hearts. It's not a problem of lack of God's word. You, you come to a church that's teaching through the Bible, you're going to hear God's word. You know, you're, you're around God's word, you're going to hear it. It's not an issue of not having God's word. But think about it. How does a field bear fruit? You have to cultivate it. You have to work the soil. And how does a field bear thorns and thistles? You don't have to do anything. In fact, if you neglect it, thorns and thistles will grow. It just happens. In fact, you have to work to keep the thorns and thistles out of a field. What am I saying? You and I, and I, this is what the writer's encouraging them, is to get into God's word cultivate it, work it in your heart, don't be lazy. If you do that, it's going to produce fruit in your life. If you are lazy and you neg neglect the word of God, thorns and thistles will spring up. And when I read that, I'm thinking about, hmm, there's a parable that Christ told about the seed and the sower in the Gospels. And one example of the seed was that it fell among the thorns. You guys know the story. Well, Mark chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus explains to his disciples about the seeds that fell among the thorns. He says, now these are the ones who are who, the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. What's the message? Don't let other things choke out the word of God in your heart. 
you know, it's interesting. One of the uh, one of the pastors that was sharing in the Voice of the Martyrs conference, um, one of the things that just jumped out at me, he was the first one that spoke, um, God's word. You know, he, he, he's there in prison, and he said, you know, God, the Holy Spirit started giving me scriptures that I had kind of learned bits and pieces as a kid. And so he didn't have a Bible, so he's like, he's like just trying to recall, and the Spirit is bringing back to his mind scripture. I've heard... Uh, POWs in Vietnam had the same kind of experience where God's word, it's coming back to them and stuff. And that's what happened to this, this, this gentleman. Well, a while into his, and I think I forgot how long he was in, in Sudan in prison, but at one point they gave him a Bible and he just devoured it and was reading it. I mean, it was like it was his treasure. And that's all he, of course, he's in prison, but that's all he did. He just read God's word cover to cover. And then later on, he got an actually an opportunity to start preaching while he's in prison in Sudan. And he's, he's in prison with, with Muslims. So it, very interesting. Um, but that's what jumped out at me. You know, we have such a treasure in God's word. Don't neglect it. Don't be lazy. Get into God's word. Don't rely on other people's pre-digested studies. Do your own studies. Anyways, after warning them, you know, he's, he's laid it kind of heavy on these guys. Now he wants to encourage them. I appreciate that because, you know, you don't want it to be just ending sermon. That's it, you know. <laughs> you bad people, you got to get into God's word. <laughs> he wants to encourage them. And so verse 9, he says this, but beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. Though we speak in this manner, he needed to warn them, but he's not writing them off. And I appreciate that. Verse 10, for God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. To me, this is just another evidence that they were believers because there was some fruit that the apostle recognized and he's commending them for. They were doing things that accompany salvation. They were ministering. They had ministered in the past and they were continuing to minister in the present. That's awesome. They were doing ministry. Well, now he's encouraging them to be diligent. Verse 11, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Just as they were diligent to minister to the saints, he says, be diligent in your faith like Abraham was. And he gives the example of Abraham through faith and patience inherited the promises. So you go, hmm, that's interesting. Maybe I'll do a study on the book of a or on uh, the person of Abraham in the Bible. That's a good thing. Get into Genesis, start reading about Abraham. He wants to encourage them now about their spiritual security. And there's three ways that he wants to encourage them that you can't lose your salvation. And that's this, first of all, by God's promise. Hebrews 6, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. And we know that Abraham was about 75 years old when God first appeared to him and said, Abram, that was his name first, you're going to have a son. 
I'm going to I'm going to make a nation out of you. Um, he was 75 years old when he first heard it. He was 100 years old when Isaac was born. So for 25 years, he patiently believed God's word, God's promise, even though it hadn't been fulfilled. How long have you been waiting for God on something? Abraham waited 25 years. For the Hebrew believers, again, think about it. The temple still standing, Christ had not returned. The temptation would be to give up and go back to Judaism, the path of least resistance. Man, I'm just going to, it's just easier to get back into my old life. And what he's telling them is don't give up. God has promised salvation. God's promised to bless you through his son, Jesus Christ. Don't give up on God's promises. And I would say that to you. Don't give up on God's promises to you. You go, well, what promises? Get into God's word. Find out what God's promises are to you. Dig into God's word. Find those opals because they're there if you'll just put in the work to dig in and find them. So he encourages them with God's promise, and then he encourages them with God's oath. Verse 16, for men indeed swear by the greater and an oath of, for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. God's promise, he made a promise, and you know what? His promise is good enough. God doesn't lie. You can just take his promise and take it to the bank. It's not counterfeit. His promise should have been good enough, and it is good enough. But even to make it that much better, he says, you know what? I'm going I'm, I'm to make it an oath. I'm going to give you an oath. I'm going to swear to it. And he couldn't swear on anything greater than himself. You know, when people say, hey, I, I, I swear on a stack of Bibles, or uh, I swear on my mother's grave, or uh, Boy Scouts honor. You know, I mean, there are all these different ways that people swear to something. They, they, they make an oath. It's usually or always is something greater than yourself. And God can't make an oath greater than, I mean, he's greatest, right? He's almighty. I mean, he can't go beyond himself. So he says, I'm the, I'm the oath, <laughs> basically. I make this oath that I'm going to do it. And so he says, by two immutable, that means unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, his promise and his oath. Now, the writer doesn't get into it in this passage of Scripture, but there's another way that God has. He's actually given you and I a security deposit that we can take with us, and we got, man, I've got this deposit, so I know God's going to come through. That's just a thing just to you know get you guys like hmm I wonder what he's talking about dig into God's word find out what that deposit is so because of God's promise and his oath and it's impossible for God to lie he says we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us fleeing for refuge I'll give you a hint. We talked about that when we were in the book of Numbers, and there's other, other passages in the Old Testament that talk about fleeing to the cities of refuge. If that gets your curiosity up, I encourage you, go into the Old Testament and look up, do a word study in the cities of refuge and see how they prefigure and point to Christ Jesus. It's a great study if you do that. 
So we have God's promise, God's oath, and then finally here at the end of this chapter, God's son. Chapter or verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. What is the anchor of our soul? Well, we see in this passage, it enters the presence behind the veil. So that would go, you know, I'm going to do an Old Testament study on, you know, the temple and the tabernacle and, the, you know, the veil. What's the veil? What's, what's the separation and stuff? And what we would find out, I'll give you, I'll do a little bit of a pre-digesting for you. We would find out that it's talking about the high priest. And only the one high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies only once a year. And, and he would offer sacrifices for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Well, it's speaking about Jesus Christ, our great high priest. In fact, we'll get into that more and more as we go through the book of Hebrews. Jesus Christ God's Son is our anchor, sure and steadfast. That means firm, steady, immovable, certain, upon which one, excuse me, upon which one may build, rely, or trust. And when you think about anchors, you know, anchors keep ships from running aground. That's what anchors are. They, they keep them from drifting and, and getting into places where ships don't belong, you know, running aground or running onto a beach and getting broken up in a surf. Um, even in a fierce storm, that's what anchors are there for. Paul wrote this to Timothy, 1 Timothy 1, 18 through 19. Uh, Timothy 1, verses 18 through 19. This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. What happened? They let go of their anchor. They let go of the anchor. The anchor would have kept them from suffering shipwreck, Jesus Christ. Yet they let go. And they ended up suffering shipwreck. You know, I look at our culture today, Christianity, the Christian culture and in our world. And it's sad to say, but there are believers who have let go of their anchor. And they're running adrift. They're running into the weird doctrines they're getting into places where eventually they're going to hit the rocks. They're going to crash and they're going to suffer shipwreck. I think right now you see the changes that are taking place in, in, in the world, especially in the Western world. And man, I tell you, we need that anchor more than ever. We need to hang on to that anchor. So what can we take from this chapter don't neglect God's word. Start eating healthy. My stomach's growling because we're talking about food all of a sudden. <laughs> Start eating healthy, unprocessed food. I mean, it's, I'm not saying don't read anything, you know, don't, don't look at the commentaries. I use commentaries in my studies. I quoted out of Warren Wiersbe's commentary. So it's not that they're bad and they can supplement what you're learning, but if that's your diet, 
that's not healthy. Get out of that pre-processed stuff, man. Process your own food. Process your own stuff. Change your diet. Start eating healthy. Don't neglect God's promises in his word. Don't neglect his word. And cultivate God's word in your heart. And how do you do that? With readiness of mind, search the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. Get into God's word. Pray before you get into it. Say, Lord, would you show me and, and dig in? God is faithful, and he will reward your studying. He's a reward, rewarder of those who diligently seek him.